thank you. Do you feel the need to qualify again? Las Vegas preaching, friends. I was preaching the gospel. I mean, really, no, seriously, I was preaching, honestly. Um, true story. It is, uh, it is so good to be gathered with you. In all honesty, it's been another one of those weekends where I feel like sermon preparation for me has looked like sitting and staring and blinking you know, for hours and hours upon time, truly. Uh, I feel like there's so much churning in me. There's so much churning in the world. Um, we need so much grace. We need so much wisdom. We need so much discernment. Um, I mean, I always feel like I'm in over my head to attempt to speak on God's behalf at all. But with stuff like this, I don't know what I'm doing. Uh, and yet there is this way, I don't know, where I do feel like the Lord wants to speak a word to us that is very other, that is very much alternative, that is... Um, uh, that comes from another place, from another perspective. That's what I need and what I'm hoping for. Um, I've thought a lot in the last few days. Really, there's been so many tragedies in the, in the last few weeks. You wonder how much do we say about that. And the, but I do think there's something appropriate about what happens in here, really brushing up against what's happening in the world. So with that in view, pray with me for just a moment, and we'll dive right in. Uh, Lord, uh, we've already prayed for Paris. We've prayed for Beirut. We've prayed for Baghdad. We... Uh, we just know now, Lord, that how your people respond in moments like this is of critical significance. We're small people living in Oklahoma or wherever people are that are watching and listening right now. Uh, we don't want to aggrandize ourselves or, or make anything out to our voice to be more uh, out to be more important than it is. But God, we do want to speak faithfully. We want to respond faithfully, and we we just need your help, Lord. We just need your help uh, where there is in a world where there's such outrageous violence, where there is such uh, abominable um, acts of terror, where there is such pain, where there is such grief. Holy Spirit, we just call on you now, and we ask you to reveal the mysteries of God to us, to speak your comfort, your hope, your life, in the name of the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit. And everybody said, amen. I'll dive right in. So we know there's over 120 uh, dead in Paris with the count still rising. Uh, less than 24 hours before the bombing in Paris, 43 people were killed in Beirut, Lebanon, which I'll say more about in a moment, is a part of the world I have great affection for. We didn't get a lot of coverage in the news from that. Uh, there was a bombing earlier this week, suicide bombing at a funeral in Iraq. And as, as connected as everything is in our world right now, not only with the, the digital age and the internet, but plane travel, this, everything, all of this just becomes more and more one big stew um, I've thought a lot these last couple days about the terrible shooting that happened in Kenya a few months ago in which 147 people were killed, which, let me just say this carefully, I am so grateful for the, uh, just this, this huge outburst of love and support for Paris and so important, it's needed, I think that's, that's great. I can't help but note that when 147 people were killed in Kenya, we didn't all change our Facebook profile for that. And I can't help but think that that has something to do with that being a part of the world where people don't look like us. Fact of the matter is, all these things are very connected. Certainly, as the body of Christ, we're deeply connected with what God is doing in all parts of the world, and we feel the grief of all of this. Um, I think that one of the things I've, I can't help but it's so, so pressing on my mind these days, I try to, when things get really tragic, I tend to go silent, social media and otherwise, because I just don't want to be in the middle of the fray all the time, but I can't help but look sometimes. You know, it's like the, the car wreck. You try to look away and you can't help but you ride by and you stare, which basically for me is the very definition of Facebook. Can I just say that right now? 
I tweet and that gets crazy sometimes too, but I don't know why it is that, that like the real zaniness happens on Facebook. If I want to be discouraged about humanity, that is where I go. Like if I really want to feel bad about myself and the world and the future, that is where I go to, to get all of the discouragement that I would ever need. And I scroll through these things, I see different kinds of responses. I think any and all kinds of responses are understandable in a time like this, uh, where there is anger, justifiable anger, outrage, grief, all those kinds of things. But for me, it always comes down to this. Where are the people of God? And how the church responds matters. How the church responds has to be different. We don't talk how everybody else talks. We don't value the same things that everybody else values. And I've thought about this so much, especially because, I don't know, we all know that this whole cocktail, right, is happening in Paris, but we all know that it's coming out of the Middle East in many ways. We know that that's where everything's really happening on the ground. We know that that's where all the disputes are, are centered. And uh, the fact is, the people who have most shaped my life as an adult, especially in the last 10 or 15 years, so many of them, uh, live, in that, live in that part of the world, and I'm not neutral about it. I'm not neutral about Lebanon, where I've been uh, a number of times now, uh, to Beirut, to, to preach, to speak, to connect with other Christians there. Not neutral about Palestinian Christians, my friends living on the West Bank, um, living faithful to Jesus and the gospel in, in incredibly difficult circumstances. Uh, it, it matters so much to me. And because I know there are these stories, because I know that I have faces in mind, I have particular people and places in mind when I think about all that, it does condition my response in a different way. Uh, often, uh, I find that in times of tragedy, out of anger, out of rage, out of uh, all of that stuff that we feel, which once again is certainly appropriate to feel those things, I just find Christians so often speak so hastily and... and uh, rush to a certain kind of judgment about how the world is and how the world must be. So many Christians who are beating that drum that Islam is inherently violent and is so inherently violent that it's impossible that Christians and Muslims could coexist peacefully in the same community without there being some kind of terrible bloodshed. Um, that is, friends, a flagrant lie. It is a lie. It's a lie from hell. I know this because my spiritual grandmother, who's 85 years old, dug out a school in a bood in the middle of a territory where everybody else there in the West Bank, all the other surrounding communities are Muslim. And the leading Muslim cleric in the area when she left with health issues said, this woman who loves Jesus changed the entire character of our village. To this day, the Muslim families in the area send their kids to this Christian school knowing that they will hear about Jesus there. Because they have done the hard work of peace and reconciliation. They have done the hard work of sowing seeds of gospel love and compassion and have beautiful relationships there. So when people who don't know anything about that part of the world and don't know anything about what's happening on the ground and don't know those faces and stories start to just spout off all of this foolishness that this is just how it has to be and only just kind of stir up the fire more, I can't help but be frustrated by that because it has real implications for our brothers and sisters on the ground. That's what I think people don't often see. We speak sometimes like it's in, on, on behalf of justice, like we wanna protect these folks, that we want to defend them. But actually, the harsh rhetoric, the overgeneralizations about Islam and all of that only fuel the fire. The last time I was in Beirut was a couple weeks after a pastor of a small church in Florida of 30 people burned the Quran. And as you can imagine, this was a huge story in the Middle East. This is the kind of thing that groups like ISIS love to use 
as material for recruitment. See how these folks disrespect our religion. It's a war against us. They're trying to root us out. And they just leverage that over and over again. So that week as I was uh, preaching, and uh, which amazing week, by the way, preaching the gospel openly. Lebanon is a country that is open that way. Still, even as Christianity is in decline, roughly 25% of the population is Christian. They have kind of a religious representative government of different sects of Muslims and Christians kind of all have a seat. And while this attack the other day was, was horrible, in general, there's been peace there more or less, uh, more often than not, in recent years. So that we, we have seen it uh, work at least to an extent. But as we're preaching in the evenings, during the day, and this was all crazy to me because, you know, I'm not, this is not my world. But my friend Shawi Bulos and several of us, we had a delegation where we were going around everywhere from, um, we, we visited with the president of Lebanon, we went to uh, the home of like, would be like the chief justice of their Supreme Court. Uh, all of these influential leaders, the, the ambassador there to Saudi Arabia, funniest thing too, because there were video cameras everywhere and, you know, and journalists, and we were just, it, it was a big deal. And all we were really doing as we were sharing, being Christians that are from the West, is coming in and saying, hey, you know, like, and this, that actually, this wasn't the purpose in the beginning. This changed based on what was happening in the news. We wanted to send a message that, hey, as Christians from America in the West, what happened in Florida, like from this one guy who pastored 30 people, that, that doesn't represent our hearts. He's, he's not one of us. That's not what we're doing. This, this does not represent the heart of Jesus to, to, to you or towards your religion. That This is not what we're saying. Trying to do something to kind of mend those bridges in some way so that those lines are still open. But I've seen over and over again where as people live the gospel faithfully in those contexts, the beautiful things that God can do. And I just think so often we resort to a kind of hopelessness and despair. We say things that are just not helpful, things that are just not edifying. Again, we're talking about how the church is supposed to respond. So many things about this scenario that I'm not that smart of a guy, truly. Like, I don't know how to sort this all out politically. I don't know how nation states should respond. I mean, we're still grieving. We're still weeping. We're still in the midst of it. I'm talking about how God's people respond, and in particular, our heart posture. What, what, is, our, what is our posture towards our enemies? What do we believe is God's posture towards his enemies? Any of that making sense so far? I know I'm throwing a lot at you. So I want to go to text. This is not from the lectionary. And uh, I will get to one from the lectionary that I planned to preach to begin with, but I just, I couldn't help but do this. I sat with it for too long. I wanted, I felt like I needed to remind us while the stakes are so high and emotions are inflamed and there's so much that we have to feel and process, I felt like I need to remind you that over half of your New Testament was written by a terrorist who meticulously rooted out Christians explicitly for their faith, murdered, killed, slaughtered the people of God. And yet, he has this experience on the road to Damascus. He has this experience that is transformative, the terrorist who becomes the greatest apostle of the church. And really, in some ways, the founder of Western civilization as we know it in the apostle Paul. Acts chapter nine is the story of how Saul becomes Paul. And there's a lot I could say about that, but I want today uh, you to read this text from a particular perspective. When Paul, Saul, has this encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, we broadly call this story the conversion of Saul. Many of your Bibles will have that in the footnotes, right? The conversion of Saul. I want to, to, to raise a question 
I want to say challenge. I'll just raise the question at first. We know that he has this dramatic experience on the road to Damascus that we'll read about. The question I want to raise, is Saul actually converted on the road to Damascus? Is this where he actually has a saving experience of Jesus? Is this where the transformation happens? Because I myself um, am fairly convinced that Saul is not converted on the road to Damascus. That's provocative enough, right? Let's go to the text. Bear it out. Weigh, discern. We'll see what happens. I'm not the expert here. We'll just read the text. We'll see what we see. Meanwhile, Saul, the terrorist, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. The man who a few chapters before is standing by cheering everybody on when Stephen was martyred. People throwing rocks until he dies. This Saul, who's still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to to Jerusalem. This This is his whole mission in life at this point, to imprison Christians, to see them tortured, to see them killed. He's directly involved with this. Now, as he was going along and approaching Damascus, Suddenly, a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asked, who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless because they heard the voice but saw no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Let's stop there for just a moment. Saul has an appearance of Jesus who says, I am Jesus, the one you're persecuting. Why are you persecuting me? He blinds him for three days. Saul loses his sight. Tell me where in those verses that you see any indication that Saul repents of his sins. Praise the sinner's prayer. Ask Jesus into his heart. Makes any indication whatsoever that he's changed his mind, which is what repentance is about, changing your mind, changing your direction, about the course that he was going. What happens in this first part of the account is very simple. Saul gets knocked off his horse and blinded. He is blind and he is bewildered. So when the voice that that, that speaks to you that blinds you say, go to the city for three days, you're going to do it because you don't want to be blind. There is no indication yet that somehow Jesus has got a hold of his heart. He didn't fall down and worship. He didn't call Jesus Lord. We know at this point, the man, here's, here's what's happening. We have a guy who has been killing people, not in the name of Allah, quoting the Quran. He's killing in the name of Yahweh, the father of Jesus, the Abba of Jesus, and thinks he's doing the right thing until that Jesus appears to him and says, why are you doing this to me? And now he's struck blind. He's bewildered. He's confused. He doesn't know what's going on. All that's happened at this point is his world's been turned upside down. Such a connection in the Gospels always between... um, blindness and seeing in a spiritual way and in a natural way. Right now, he's still blind. He doesn't have new sight. He doesn't have new vision. The way he saw the world before has been undone. 
That's been taken down, but it hasn't been replaced yet. So let's go back to the text. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he answered, here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. At this moment, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so they might regain sight. He's praying, that's good news. He prayed before, because he's a faithful Jew. He prays all the time. He's troubled. He is praying. That's good. He's seeking for answers to be sure. But again, show me in the text where there's been any transformation at this point. But here's where it gets really interesting to me. But Ananias answered, very pragmatically, very practically, I am with Ananias here. Lord, I have heard from many about this man. My Facebook news feed is chock full of Saul stories. I just felt something rise up in me right then. I don't know if that's the Holy Ghost or not. How much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who invoke your name. Um, thank you, Jesus, but do you watch CNN? Do you know who this guy is? Do you know who you're talking about here? How could I welcome this man? How could I somehow embrace him into my home? Let's go back to the text. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So keep in mind, this is not a case of, okay, uh, Ananias is connecting with a refugee who may or may not be a terrorist. He knows who Saul is. He knows what Saul is about. And yet God calls him to extend hospitality to this notorious murderer and terrorist. So then Ananias went and entered the house. And I am convinced that Saul, who up until this point is still blind, is still bewildered, is still confused, I believe that this is the moment where the transformation happens. I believe this is the moment where that seed that was planted in him on the road to Damascus is watered and turns into something else. I think this is the moment where Saul is making the metamorphosis into Paul. And this is what happens. This man named Ananias who was one of the people that he was persecuting, one of the people he was terrorizing, one of the people he was looking to kill. That man that was his enemy laid hands on him and said, Saul, you son of Satan, you infidel, Satan spewed you out to this place, you poisonous snake, repent and believe in the Son of God. Or <laughs> he lays hands on him and he says something far more provocative. Brother Saul, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus whom appeared to you on your way here has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. Now he can see and his sight was restored. Then he got up and was baptized. Where does Saul start to actually see differently? What is the catalyst 
to make him decide to make a public profession of faith in Jesus through baptism, when his enemy treats him as a friend, and this man who hated him calls him Brother Saul, I know some of you want to go back in and insert the sinner's prayer earlier in the story. You can do that if you want. It's not in the text. What I'm convinced changes Saul every bit as much as the encounter he has with Jesus is the fact that the man that he was actively trying to kill calls him his brother and treats him as a friend. That is the heart of the gospel, is the way that God transforms the world is that he looks at his enemies and calls them friend. The most heartbreaking verse in the Bible to me, Judas, when he comes to bring Jesus and he's got the the troops all around him, Jesus, even though Judas is not gonna receive this word of friendship, says to him, friend, do what you've come here to do. I don't think there's a trace of sarcasm in his voice. Jesus extends friendship to the bitter end. And for, for, for 2,000 years within the church, we've been trying to reverse this order. We're not comfortable with anything other than the idea once people repent and they get their heart right and they realize the error of their ways and all that, then we can love them and then we can bless them, then we can extend grace in this way. Not how God does it. God extends the grace first. The man says, Brother Saul, when it's really doubtful whether or not he's a brother thus far. The man speaks into his future in that way. We've got all these beautiful pictures today of kids that need to be adopted. We know how that works in a natural sense that after a kid is adopted and loved and cherished in a certain way, that behaviors change. This is how God changes us. But it happens through this kind of enemy love. It happens through God using, the, using people who are unafraid to lay hands on their enemies and call them friends, to call them brother and sister, who otherwise seem to be, in fact, may actually be out to kill them. Is this making any kind of sense thus far? I'm just reading the Bible to you. I don't know where you think I get this from. Acts chapter nine, right? I mean, I just feel like right now, I just, I don't, I don't mean to, I don't mean to say this like too abrasively, but it is what I feel. We're just in a world right now where there's so much rhetoric back and forth. We're just, we're just not used to hearing the gospel. We forgot what the gospel sounds like. This is the gospel. This is not peripheral. This is not a quirk. I didn't discover something last night. I'm trying to share something revolutionary and hip for the church because I've got new glasses and I have new smart things to say to the people of God because I have revelation. This is the heart of the gospel. This is 101. This is fundamental. This is basic. This is how God changes the world. This is how the gospel works in the world, which begs a horrible question for us, doesn't it? What if how God wants to change the world now is that he wants to take somebody out of ISIS and turn them into an apostle to the nations. Could God do that, or is your God too small? Have we given up praying prayers like that? Is this God less than he was then? Is he not the God who raised Jesus from the dead and Israel up out of Egypt? Is he not the God who poured out his Holy Spirit in the first century? Is he restricted somehow? Does he have a different agenda now than he did then? Do we believe that God can do this? This same apostle who knows what he was talking about because he was waging physical war against people in an evil, brutal, maniacal way, will write to us later on, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, spiritual forces of of wickedness in the high places. For the weapons, he'll say another place, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, 
but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. I'm not telling the world what to do. I'm talking about the church. How do we respond? It has to look like this. There will not be a natural solution. There will not be a governmental military solution that will fix the kind of depravity at work in the world right now. The Holy Ghost of God changes it or it does not change. There is no other alternative. Nothing else is going to work. Which, which man, I'm so fired up right now, dear God. I'm about to lose my mind. I'm gonna have an aneurysm one day preaching. I just know it's gonna happen. <laughs> which begs the question, doesn't it? Because even for those of you who are on board with this and say, well, yeah, that's cool. I like that. Well, yeah, I mean, I can't argue with Saul. But what do we do with this? What do we do? Good news, bad news, depending on how you look at it. Only one thing we can do, especially in the middle of grieving and mourning when so many things are yet unclear, all the information's not in. Even if it was in, what would, how, we wouldn't know what to do with it. So what do we do? We pray. We pray, 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 pray. That is what we do. We use language like, all we can do is pray. All we can do is pray. Most powerful thing anybody can do is pray. Prayer changes the world. I understand what people mean when they say prayer doesn't change things. Prayer changes us. I just don't believe it. I think prayer changes you and it changes things. Prayer matters. Prayer makes a difference. And, and days like this, when the terror is great, when the violence looms, are days where we pray. We pray more. We pray more intensely. And that leads me to my other text. So over time, already I can tell, but it's all good. And this is the lectionary text for today. This is what I was going to talk about before. So, yeah, message in two parts. But this gets to the heart, I think, of the kind of prayer that's called for and the kind of prayer that I do believe is so transformative. It comes from 1 Samuel 1. For the sake of time, I'm not going to give a lot of context for the story because I don't think it's very necessary. We'll, we'll really focus on a couple of, of, of verses. But 1 Samuel 1, beginning with verse 4, says, On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to his wife, Penina, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. Her rival used to provoke her severely, irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. Her husband Elkanah said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than 10 sons? After they had eaten and drunk at Shiloh, Hannah rose and presented herself before the Lord. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and she wept bitterly. Now really note these words. She made this vow, O Lord of hosts, if you will only look on the misery of your servant. This is a prayer of anguish. And remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a male child. Then I will set him before you as a Nazarite until the day of his death. He shall drink neither wine nor intoxicants, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli, the priest, observed her mouth. And this part's fascinating. Hannah was praying silently. Only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli, the prophet, thought she was drunk. He thinks this woman has come into the temple hammered. She's down here. Her lips are moving. I can't hear any noise. She's clearly in some kind of a state. 
She is drinking whiskey in God's house. Who, who is this woman and what is she doing here? So Eli said to her, how long will you make a drunken spectacle of yourself? Put away your wine. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a woman deeply troubled. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink. Well, I love this. She's not been drinking whiskey, but she's been pouring out. I'm pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation all this time. Speaking out of great anxiety and vexation. Let those words linger. Then Eli answered, go in peace. The God of Israel grant the petition you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your sight. Then the woman went to her quarters, ate and drank with her husband, and her countenance was sad no longer. They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to the house at Ramah. Elkanah knew his wife, Hannah, which does not mean he read her Wikipedia page. And the Lord remembered her. In due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. She named him Samuel, for she said, I have asked him of the Lord. The kind of prayer that Hannah prays here is a prayer full of anguish and desperation. It is a primal kind of prayer. Interesting that the parallel text for this for me is in Acts, when the disciples are filled with the Spirit, speaking in new languages. People say they're drunk with wine, and they're not. In this case, in a sense, this woman was intoxicated, but not with wine. She was drunk with grief. She was intoxicated with sadness. She felt it all the way down in her bones. This, this is the kind of prayer that comes from the pit of your stomach. It is not pretty. It is not tidy. There, there, there really are no words. This is where the most kind of profound prayer happens is in the wordless places. You can't even articulate what you feel. You don't have language. You don't have words. You can't really express it. It's a kind of groaning it's a kind of sighing. More than anything, it's a sitting in the presence of God and just pouring it out. It is the kind of prayer that takes place beneath words. It's the prayer beneath the prayer. My favorite film is uh, Terrence Malick's Tree of Life, which is my idea of a Christian movie, which may tell you a lot about me. I'm not sure, but another story for another time. What, my favorite scene in the film, you have this little boy growing up in East Texas in the 1950s. He kneels down beside his bed and he's praying these prayers. And he's praying prayers like his parents taught him to pray. And it's essentially like a, now I lay me down to sleep, pray the Lord my soul to keep kind of prayer. He's praying those words. And while you hear the words that are coming out of his mouth, the camera pans away. And while he's saying these words out loud, you hear the things that he's saying underneath. And it is not, now I lay me down to sleep. He's saying things like, who are you? I want to know what you are. That's the prayer going on beneath. I think so often the really interesting prayer is not the stuff that we'll dare to articulate out loud. It's the stuff that's happening so deep in here. It's the prayer that is completely untidy. It is not the politically correct prayer. This is the prayer where with your lips you might be saying, Lord, my father is in a lot of trouble. Will you help him? But your heart is saying, I hate that man for what he did to me. I know I'm not supposed to hate him. You want me to love him. But the fact is, I don't. I hate that man. And I don't want to pray this right now. I'd like to feel different, but I don't. This is the kind of prayer, on the surface, it might sound like 
anger towards one enemy, uh, towards one's enemy. We get that a lot in the Psalms, right? Um, I hope people often really just don't know how to read the Bible. There are terrible things in the Psalms. Happy is the man who takes the head of the infants of his enemy and dashes them against the rocks. That doesn't express the heart of God. That doesn't express Jesus. That's not, God is not like that. This teaches us how to pray, though. We pray anything and everything. We pour out the whole soul before the presence of God. That is the point. In that case, sometimes the words that we're praying might be words of anger towards somebody else. But what's really happening deep down, if you could hear the voices, we're saying, God, I'm so scared. I am so scared right now. I am so scared of the world that I'm living in. I don't know what to do. I am freaked out. The prayer that goes beneath the words. I think especially in seasons like this, this is where it becomes so important for us to bring all of those inarticulate feelings, anger, grief, sorrow, confusion, bewilderment, and, and, and bring it into the presence of God, sit with it, let it flow out of us. That's where the most powerful prayer happens is when something deep within our own spirit, however chaotic it might be, connects with the Holy Spirit. That's the kind of prayer that God responds to. That's the kind of prayer that God wants, right? I mean, I feel like so often, Michael Harden talks about how much of the Old Testament is a debate between priest and prophet, which I largely buy. The priests often are the ones giving you the rules and regulations and telling you that you need to keep them. Prophets give a very different perspective. So the priests institute these Sabbaths and festivals. And then you have the prophets come along saying on behalf of God, I hate your Sabbaths and your new moons and your festivals. The priests are giving instructions on sacrifice. God comes to the prophets and says, I never wanted sacrifice. I only wanted mercy from the beginning. Or here's something provocative for you. In the book of Jeremiah, God actually says, when I delivered your forefathers up out of Egypt, I did not give them the law. Oh, okay. What do you do with that? I don't know. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. <laughs> There's largely a dispute, a debate within the text between priest and prophet. But so often, I think, especially within the church, we as institutional Christians fall on the priestly side of everything. We're the disciples trying to keep the crowd away from Jesus, the woman with the issue of blood, the children who want to come to the presence of Jesus that he wants to welcome. We're the ones who try to minimize everything messy. We're the ones who have slick, glossy presentations of the gospel and then say, we couldn't have a kid with special needs in here. They might make noise and that might keep somebody from hearing the message of whatever that message is, whatever that gospel is supposed to be. We are often on the side of the priest in that way. We come together and we keep everything orderly, order, we keep everything tidy, we keep everything neat and clean. What God wants is this kind of heartbroken, anguished prayer where we allow the sighs and groans to come forth. That's the kind of prayer that's called for in moments like this. But you say, I don't know what to pray. I don't know what to pray either. Who knows what to pray? Who knows what to say? So don't think about what to say. Don't think about what to pray. Pour it out. Pour it out. And if what's in you is ugly, pour that out before the Lord too. Because that's the only way it gets transformed. Bring all of this into the presence of God. I, I really do have to stop. I just think there's something so, so significant about getting in the presence of God and really allowing him to hear the sound of your own soul. He loves that. You often don't even know you have a soul until it's torn to pieces. You know you have a soul until you've hurt. The pain and the grief, it, it can be so alive and so awful. The fear can grip you and be so strong. The hatred, the rage, whatever it might be. 
But when we bring that whole cocktail of complicated stuff into the presence of Jesus, it becomes fuel for something else. God uses that to change the world. God uses that to change us. And I'm convinced that this is a moment for that, for that kind of prayer. There is a kind of grief. There is a kind of rage. There is that sense of, Lord, we just don't even know what to do with all this. But we want to pray the way you've taught us to pray. And we will pray blessings on our enemies because you told us to. We will pray for those who persecute us, those who, who, would, who, would, who, would, who would do us harm. We will pray blessings. We will pray through till we get to that place. If we don't start there, we'll end there. We'll start from the place of grief. We'll start from the place of mourning. But we'll open ourselves before the Lord. This is the kind of prayer that God wants. This is the kind of prayer that changes the world. So if you're sitting here in the midst of all these complicated things and saying, I don't know what, to, I just don't know what to do with all this. I don't know what to do with all of it either. So here's a novel idea. Why don't we pray? Let's stand up. We can start now. We get to do this now. Can you believe that? God, we just ask. Well, we don't ask first. We just, we just confess. The world that we live in is such a violent place. And the voices that are buzzing around us in real life and digital life, it is just dizzying. Lord, and we tell the truth. We, are, we get so confused, and when we're certain, we're certain about the wrong things. Lord, as a people, we don't know what we're doing. We don't know how to fix any of this. We don't know how to solve any of our problems, Lord. We don't know how to talk to our own kids and our own families, much less how to fix ISIS in the Middle East. We, we are clueless most of the time. But Lord, we call on you now. We ask you for your help. We ask you, Spirit of God, to come and brood over our chaos now and bring life. I'm thinking about people in this community right now who aren't just grieving about what's happening on the other side of the world. I'm, I'm thinking about my new friend, Patty. I'm thinking about couples I know in this church who are struggling with infertility now and feel desperate. All these layers of grief. God, we bring all of that into your presence. Things that are too deep for words. We don't even know. We, would, we don't even know how to begin to know what to say, Lord, but we just pour these things out as an offering before you. Everything in us, everything in us. And we ask you for help. We ask you for wisdom. We ask you for healing. And Lord, even if for some of us it's through clenched teeth, Lord, we do bless our enemies and we do believe the same God who changed Saul can change anybody and we do believe that the same power that was at work in Jesus of Nazareth is still at work in the world right here, right now. And we do believe, God, that there is a, a hope and a future that's brought wherever your people are, wherever your church is. God, we do pray for peace. And we pray most of all, Lord, even today, that you would remind us of who we are, remind us of who we're called to be. So many things above our pay grade, but we can remember who we are. We can remember how you've called us to speak. You can, we can remember how you've called us to act. You can call us back to the table again where we remember what we're supposed to be for the world. Your body, broken, distributed. Let that happen now, God. Transform us change us. And I pray that from this moment, many more prayers will come forth in these coming days. Soulish, heartbroken, anguished, sincere prayers where our spirit touches the Holy Spirit. 
and you change us and you change the world. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services at 5 p.m. on Saturday, 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. on Sundays. And if you would like more information on who we are and what we're about here at Sanctuary or to give online, please visit our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com or you can download our mobile app from the App Store or Google Play. We hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week.